Hi, my name is Julie Hall, and you are listening to Chasing Dreams with Amy J. Welcome to Chasing Dreams podcast with Amy J. Amy believes that realizing a life without regrets is achieved by taking chances, chasing your dreams, making moves, and overcoming your doubts. The Chasing Dreams podcast will help you overcome life's obstacles, believe in your potential, and inspire you to face your fears. And now here's the woman who is passionately pursuing her dreams, Amy J. Hey, Gene Chasers, this is Amy J, and thank you so much for tuning in to episode 249 of Chasing Dreams. <sighs> Guys, can you believe it? Can you believe it? We are at 249, the penultimate episode. Wow. I have emotions at the moment, feelings, but first, I want you to listen to this episode, and we'll get to it. I want to bring you guys, as I said, these last few episodes, important people to help you as you're trying to figure out your dream chase and where you stand in it. And so today's episode is no different. I'm bringing you Julie Hall. She's an experienced licensed marriage and family therapist in Connecticut. She specializes in supporting families, individuals, and couples navigating issues of self-worth, life transitions, and or trauma. She draws upon compassion and curiosity to foster a safe environment for clients to explore their lived experiences. Julie also explores family systems with clients as a tool in self-understanding, strength, and empowerment to ultimately foster healthy growth and change. She desires her clients to feel seen, known, and valued. You guys see why I want her on the show? And there's also a little bit Julie's family. She's cousin, and therefore, I know she can help you guys. And so... I'm very excited for you guys to listen to this episode. We talk about a number of things, including how you can better prepare yourself for chasing your dreams. But first, before we get to that, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Chasing Dreams is sponsored by Ringtones by Amy J. As your personal hype man, Amy wants to provide you with the tools to help you along your dream chase. These new ringtones can be used as text alerts, ringtones, or alarms. The ringtones range from an alarm reminding you it's time to be intentional to an affirmation reminding you that you are enough. To learn more, please visit amyj21.com slash tones or search for Amy J under iTunes on your iOS device or the Tunes ringtone store. All right, folks. Now, here's Julie. Hey, Julie. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's so good to be here. So good to be here. So full disclosure, guys, Jules is my cousin. I totally wanted her to be here uh, because if you didn't realize it, if you didn't, you missed the beginning of the show. This is the penultimate episode, which is crazy to me. Crazy. But I told you guys I was going to bring you somebody that would help you. You know, we're going out with a bang, but we're going to go out making sure you chase your dreams. And so I brought Julie on because... She has experience with people, young people, Mm. elderly, family, you know, all these circumstances. And so wanted to talk to you, Jules, about first you, and then we'll talk about other people. But for first for you, what did young Julie want to be growing up? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's such a fun question. So my dad was um, a draftsman. He was a mechanical engineer. And so he would do a lot of drawing. And so... With his drawing, I think it just inspired me, and I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to be an architect. It just sounded like the perfect job for me. You are not an architect. Surprising. You are not. A, yeah, yeah, it is actually kind of a little bit. Kind of a little bit. So, weird. so where where did the path change? You know, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how it just sort of morphed, but... You know, I could tell you a little bit about sort of my my journey. Would that be helpful? Just yes. as far as share it, how it, it sort of morphed. That was kind of my initial sort of passion, and I wasn't necessarily, as far as architecture, I wasn't necessarily that committed to. Was really just sort of open and went to school, like undergrad. I went to school for engineering, 
and um, pretty quickly knew that that really wasn't going to be where I was going to land as far as, <laughs> as, as far as living out my dream. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, I ended up doing, you know, my first job was in corporate and I was in programming and I moved into product management, you know, on sort of the website and I like that for a little while. And, and that's really what I did in different sort of sectors. I worked in corporate and then I moved into nonprofit and I moved into government. I moved into a startup. I did all kinds of things, but under the sort of web development umbrella for, I would say about 10 plus years. I always knew that, you know, I had a heart for people. You do. I loved, I loved, right? Like I loved talking to people. I loved learning about people's stories. So it wasn't until we, Joel and I, my husband, we were trying to get pregnant and we started hitting all kinds of fertility issues. You know so much of our story. It was just this really wild, painful time. And and we were working with a reproductive endocrinologist at the time. And I remember he just sort of slipped me a card for a therapist. I was going to ask, I was like, how'd you take that? I was offended because we were already sort of dealing with issues with my physical body, like things that were sort of supposed to happen that weren't happening. Right. And now the way that I was making meaning of him sort of slipping me this card is there's something wrong mentally. On top of that. On top of that. Exactly. And, and Indians, we don't, we don't do therapy. We don't talk therapy. So on top of that, even. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are all kinds of narratives that were, you know, with me since childhood that sort of you know, I think just compounded that feeling for me. Mm-hmm. And so, so, but I took the card because I think there was this, this teeny part of me that was saying he's on to something. Hmm. And so I actually did make an appointment with a therapist who happened to be like across the, the hall. And I got to the appointment, sat across from her, and it was like the floodgates opened. It was this experience that, I'd never had before. And it was like something, it was just like a cleansing, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. It does. Yeah. And, and I came out of there and I thought, what was that? That was so powerful and so important. And I didn't know that an experience like that existed or that I had permission to have an experience like that. Permission. You know permission. Right. So that for me, and you really just sort of started this kind of journey for me in my career, you know, recognizing that a lot of people struggling with fertility issues did not have the resources. We didn't have really resources as far as support. People didn't really know how to navigate it. Our friends and family, as much as they love us, they didn't really know how to support us in a way that we could receive or was necessarily helpful for us. And so through that process, I decided I really wanted to be on the other side and I wanted to be that for other people who were struggling. And I went back to school and, you know, here I am, however many years later. Helping people. In private practice. Well, let me ask you, are you happy? Oh gosh, girl, I am. I really am. I really feel like this is God's calling for me. This is, you know, where I'm supposed to be. But it wasn't easy. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's never easy. But, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have taken the path you took, even after having that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Because not only did you talk therapy and have therapy, you went and became a therapist. That's right. That's right. And at the time, so I went back to school and I was about to start my first year in my grad program. And it was going to start in September. And we found out we were pregnant that August. So the month right before I was about to start school. So I ended up going through the grad program pregnant and, you know, uh, having Eden graduated when she was a year and a half. So, you know, it's funny. I always joke that all my cohort 
classmates, they wanted to go out and do karaoke. And I was like, hey, I, I got to go home and pump. It's <laughs> <You know, like, laughs> just a, you know, a, a different time. But, you had a different experience. Absolutely. Yeah, but got through it, got through it. But it's, yeah. it's awesome because you are helping people. And I think sometimes because when I'm going to say immigrants, but I yeah. think people of color overall, when we yeah. don't see ourselves in therapy or in the therapists, it's almost like we don't think it's for us or it's, right. you know, if, if not, why, why should I go? They don't understand what I'm going through. And, you know, I'm seeing right. now a influx as we're recording this, it's mental health awareness month. When you guys hear it, it'll be the month after, but it's always mental health awareness. Mm -hmm. Talk about it. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's so important because you're giving a face to something that previously has not been talked. It's not that it was taboo. It's just, I don't even know why we don't mm -hmm. talk about therapy or mental health. It's just never encouraged. Have you got any insight on why that is? You know, as far as I think kind of the immigrant experience, I think that there is for some reason, and I don't know sort of you know, how far this moves through generations, but there's this image mm -hmm. that has, you know, I think been passed down as far as what we want to uphold, right? An image of success, right? An image, you know, of as far as what success means, right? That we have that family and that we have that, you know, we have it all together and we have the job and we have the house and all those things. And I think that when we start talking about challenges, it really impacts the image that we want to uphold, right? It really starts yeah. to confront and expose the image. You know, I think from what we grew up with, as far as kind of the immigrant dynamic, we don't know how to really hold that tension, right? And, and I think that's certainly what I've really come up against even in my personal life, right? That, you know, we don't talk about those, those tough things. We don't talk about those, it, but what it does for us, right? Is it perpetuates this experience of shame, right? Yeah, very much so. And it's, it's almost like you, you failed at something you didn't know you were testing for. <laughs> yes. Right. Amy, yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Somehow I make meaning of that. We don't talk about this as I did something wrong. Yeah. I did something wrong. And so I better not talk about it. Right. And instead I put up all the things that, you know, are, are going well. And even if our parents aren't sort of explicitly saying that or the people around us, you know, in that, you know, in our culture aren't explicitly saying that we make that meaning. Like I always say, we have our five senses. Mm -hmm. And then we have our sixth sense and our sixth senses are meaning making sense. It's how we make meaning of the world around us based on how we are responded to in our sphere. So I, I think mental health in particular has been, I, I love seeing the shifts in communities of color, bodies of color, right? As far as this being, I think, in our generation and the generation that comes after us, you know, it's something that is being spoken about mm -hmm. so, so much more freely yeah. and openly. I mean, there's so much power in that. Yeah. As someone who works with young people in particular and families, yeah, you're seeing a change in mental health and that is being talked about. What are some of the big things that are affecting young people today that some people just don't realize? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that particularly with young people, I live in a community where, you know, there is a certain level of, like we're in a, a sort of socioeconomic bracket, right? In the, the area that I'm in, right? And, but I think across the board, um, kids are experiencing a significant amount of pressure pressure to achieve mm. and pressure to achieve academically the level of, you know, competition that, you know, they have to navigate as far as even just getting into schools, right. All the kinds of extracurricular activities that they have to, you know, uphold on top of academics, you know, even our young people, my daughter's eight, mm. 
and amongst her peers, right? There are people that, you know, have already been doing their one sport for four years or doing their one instrument for four years, right? It's, I, I think we're, we're, we're sort of missing that experience, just recreational, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, recreational activity, right? Whether it be sports or dance or, you know, music. Anything, even even the un unorganized recreation, right? I mean, yes. I feel like people are just doing some things for the gram, and it's like uh, social media. Can you can you guys come off of it? Because I remember playing outside or walking down the street to hang out with the cousins or the neighbors and playing make believe or something. Yes, it's the unorganized. It's it's the play. Like we were missing the play, you know, and, and so I just, I really, I think in my witness of the young people, I, I see it's the kind of pressure that they're having to navigate in addition to, you know, having to uphold their academics. And then on top of that, I think, you know, for young people and, you know, even the older population, it's, it's body image. Instagram filters and all of that, I think it, it really can impact the way that we see ourselves, right? And how we see ourselves just in who we are without the filters and without the, all these different sort of, sort of shifts. And so I think that that just has a real impact on our sense of self and particularly young people who are that much just more susceptible to and impressionable to these things. Yeah. You know, Joel, it, it's funny because I feel like I'm, I've become more aware that social constructs are playing more and more of a role in our life in terms of how we address things, how we listen to things and what we do with things. And it's, it's funny. It's, it's social constructs in terms of the things that we see, how we're, how much we're supposed to eat or what we're supposed to do or what we can do. And it's coming on to parents are applying it to kids, but then kids are seeing it on TikTok and on Instagram, on, I know, advertisements and stuff, right? Because you don't see anyone who isn't quote unquote perfect in TV shows. You don't see, right? If they have mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. bit of a belly, you won't see them. Mm -hmm. And this is for both girls and boys, mm -hmm. men and mm -hmm. women, because even guys, I'm here for you guys. Guys have the unrealistic expectation of having to have uh, six packs. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. any kind of belly fat or natural fat or whatever is like hard on you. And so mm -hmm. I, what can we do about that? Is there anything we can do about that? Because I feel like more and more people aren't comfortable with themselves. Yeah. And I feel like that's yeah. like the first start of any kind of help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great question, Amy. When I work with adults in particular, I'm trained as a licensed marriage and family therapist. And so the lens with which I look at the issues that we face is through the lens of relationships. And our earliest relationships are really with our family of origin. So for at least a session or two, we, you know, in my work with clients, I focus on family of origin. And I do that really to kind of draw out three things. And this relates to your question. The three things that I try, try to draw out are one, patterns, right? What are the, the relational patterns that we have experienced generationally, right? So I look at grandparents' generation, our parents' generation, and then ours. And by patterns, I mean, how was love given? How was love received? What did conflict look like? What did communication look like? What are some of the things we talked about? So I look at patterns. I also look at narratives, and we talked a little bit earlier about narratives and narratives are very simply kind of the stories that we tell ourselves about the world around us and the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Right. And these are often shaped, I think, out, certainly through social construct, but also really through our experience with our family of origin. Yeah. Right. So with children, I think it's really important. You know, when I work with children, I always try to 
have some time with their parents, right? With their caretakers. Because it's really important, I think, for the caretakers to also recognize some of their own stuff so that we can start to kind of break these cycles. So we look at narratives, we look at patterns, and we also look at trauma. And trauma, the simplest, I think, most poignant definition of trauma that I found is the one of an incredible author uh, and therapist. His name is Ress Momenikin. And um, he says that trauma is anything that happened to us that was either too much too fast, too much too long, or not enough too long, where we didn't receive adequate support and care, right? And trauma in, a, in and of itself can impact our narratives and in, impact our patterns, right? And so I look at patterns, narratives, and trauma for two purposes. One is so that we can now really kind of operate from this place of consciousness. We can have this awareness about the things that we have carried with us for so long. We can actually put words to it, mm -hmm. right? So much of this stuff, as much as it is with us, it's just in our subconscious. We just kind of move through without actually being able to put words to our narratives, our patterns, and any of our traumas, right? Yeah. And so this work, I think, just helps us put words to that. And then by putting words to it, I think it just helps us move through our work from a place of self-compassion. Like, oh, it makes sense that I do things this way. Yeah. Or it makes sense that I behave this way or that I've carried this for this long, right? Because this is what I had to work with, right? And so it's that compassion that I think place in us that I want to help clients sort of access in my work with them. So that's the first reason. And the second reason that I do this discovery work with clients is so that we can now choose. I can say, okay, now that I have awareness and consciousness about all these things that I've been carrying, narratives, patterns, and trauma, I can decide, you know what, this value is actually really important for me. And this is something that I want to carry forward in my relationships. Or you know what, this actually isn't something that serves me well anymore. And so I'm just going to leave this behind. Right. And so, you know, to your question about what do we do, I think it's so important for us to do our own work, mm -hmm. to do our own work and really check ourselves as far as what is serving me well and what isn't and what do I carry forward with me to the next generation. That I think it's so important. It's it's interesting that it's only later in life that we come to realize how much time we should be spending with ourselves. Right. The the It's not a trend and it's not a fad. I get it, guys. But how journaling and mm. how planners have become cool and, you know, taking time to, to do that, how it probably needs to start earlier mm. in such a way so that we can really become one with ourselves. Because what you're saying, all the things you're saying are things of awareness that mm -hmm. we don't really make time for. Mm -mm. Right. Is that is that kind of. The thought mm -hmm. that we need to make time and date ourselves and kind of figure out who we are and what we like, what we don't like, what's working, what's not. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think that's so much of it. It's just bringing these things to consciousness, right? And mm -hmm. really starting to recognize what's serving me well and what's not, right? Because if we're not doing that work, we carry that. There's a great quote that says, pain travels through families unless or until someone is ready to sit with it. Right. It will just continue to travel with us until one of us, until that brave person is ready to sit with it and hold it and say, OK, what's working here and what's not and what cycles do we need to break? One of the reasons I wanted you on the show, Jules, is for this conversation, yeah. but also because, you know, the talk and discovery, because you do yeah. it with clients and, and people that you work with. But discovery of oneself is yeah. something I think you know, oftentimes for dream chasers, and it was for myself, and I've shared that story, is I went down a path that I thought was for me, mm -hmm. but wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I had an epiphany that I hope everyone has at some point earlier rather than later, that if, if this isn't for you, that you discover it. And mm -hmm. I've shared this story before with you guys, you know, how I've 
was in a cubicle, just pressing a button and realized, hey, this isn't what I want for my life. Mm-hmm. And only in looking further into it, realizing it was my cultural understanding that painted and colored the decisions I was making mm-hmm. and the road that I was taking. And so for the past 15 years, making a conscious effort to work on it, and mm-hmm. it takes time, guys, because after that, it took seven years to even fully do it consistently. But yeah. how do people, because a lot of people who are listening, audience, dream chasers that are listening, are people who are probably not happy, who mm. are probably have, feeling some kind of regret, but not sure what it's about, where it's at. And sometimes it's even just a small thing that, you know, I don't want you guys to think is your whole life. It might not be your whole sure. life, right? Sure. What can they do to kind of reflect and figure out and help them kind of come to their own epiphany in their own way? Yeah, you asked such really poignant and thoughtful questions, you know, and um, I think that's it's so important, you know, and and in, you know, again, kind of in the work that I do with people for my for myself, I'm also trained in something called emotion focused therapy. Mm -hmm. And an emotion-focused therapy, I'm just going to, if I could, Amy, I'd love to just sort of explain it from this sort of framework of a hierarchy. Yeah, let's do it. And I think it really relates to, to the question that you're asking. And so what I really try to do with clients is first, I really try to help them recognize their triggers. What are the triggers? By trigger, what I mean by that is really kind of anything that's happening outside of us right? When that thing happens, it essentially sends a message from our brain to our body or to our nervous system that we are under some kind of threat. There's some kind of threat that we're experiencing in that place, right? There's something just isn't feeling right. And the body can tell us very often before our thoughts can get there, right? So So the brain is sending a message to the body and generally what we, you know, what we say in emotion focused therapy is that the threat is any perceived or real threat to our feelings of safety, our feelings of love and or feelings of belonging, hmm. safety, love and or belonging. So whenever we experience any one of those feelings, real or perceived of threat we move into what's called our threat response behaviors. A threat response behavior, right? We've heard of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple and very real, I think, just expression of our threat response behavior, right? We can get, we can get angry. We can become sarcastic. We can, um, you know, start to, uh, withdraw. We can retreat. You know, or, or we can um, try to fix all the things or move all the pieces. That's an experience of control. Or we can try to kind of numb out a little bit. That's another threat response behavior, right? And all of those threat response behaviors, you know, I'm very intentional about not shaming those behaviors because those behaviors come and have been developed by our bodies to essentially try to keep us safe. Try to keep us safe. And they can often just show up subtly, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, that like moment for you where you're saying, you know what, this just doesn't feel right. This right. cubicle thing doesn't feel right. But I don't think that I can, I can, you know, exit out of this because of X, Y, and Z, right? There's some kind of threat perhaps that's showing up for you. That's telling you, you know, I, I can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, there's some kind of threat, right? And so then we operate from the threat response behavior place. And, and so what I try to help clients do is really start to name their triggers. What are those experiences that happen outside of you that, that creates this kind of body response? Yeah. Right. Name them just in their day to day, right. Really help them sort of get attuned to what those triggers are. Really start to get connected with our body responses to those triggers. Right. And then, so it's the trigger, it's the threat response. Underneath the threat response is what I call, or emotion focused therapy might call our pain story, our pain story. So imagine if you are experiencing a trigger, mm-hmm. it's as if 
somebody put a t-shirt on you and the t-shirt in that moment of trigger says something like, I am blank. And the I am statement usually sounds something like, I am not good enough. I am worthless. I am devalued. Mm. I am insignificant. I am not worthy of love. I am rejected. I am disconnected. I am a failure, right? They're just not pretty stories. They're not pretty stories, which is why our threat response behavior says, hey, let's not talk about those things. Let's not go there because that's just too tender. It's too vulnerable. Let's not talk about those. So essentially, for our self-preservation, we can often just kind of suppress those pain stories. But they are very much still a part of us. Right. And often our pain stories, they have legs to them, like they're familiar stories. What I often see with clients is like we don't have 25 stories. We have like three pain stories. And those pain stories have been with us since our childhood to some degree. And they carry. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Right. And it's just this is really a process of naming that pain story. Right. For me. One of my really palpable pain stories has been, I'm not enough. So in that experience, when I get triggered, even to this day, right, I have moments where I can feel the trigger and my body sends a, 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 has a sensation, a response. And the pain story that's being nudged up for me is I'm not enough, right? And so what I try to help clients do in my, in our space is foster you know, a, a, an environment that is safe enough for us to really sit with the pain story and explore it in a way that our body can say, oh, okay, we don't have to do the threat response move. We can actually sit with this and explore the pain story. Where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. Right. And the, the intention that we have is really in, in that work is how do I really speak back to the pain story? Right. Speak back to the pain story. When I can speak back to the pain story, it opens up this place in me where I can drop some of those threat response modes and I can really show up in this world as my most authentic self. Yeah. That's all we want. Yeah. That's all we want. Right. But I think so much of it is really putting words to the pain story really critically thinking about it, recognizing its origins, mm-hmm. right? It's, and now really from a more empowered place, speaking back to it and saying that is not true about who we are. It's not true. What's What's interesting about what you're saying about mm. all of it, right, is we don't think, especially people who don't have, because I think when you talk about trauma, people think of, an accident, a sudden death, a, a significant life altering thing. So when we don't have any of those experiences, when you say trauma, we're like, I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. I don't uh-huh. have any of that in me or in my childhood. Therefore this doesn't apply. And so I want to speak to those people. What would you say to that? You know, again, just such a, you know, poignant comment. Um, there's a, a, another really beautiful quote um, by a therapist, another therapist, and I can't remember her name, but she talks about complex trauma. Mm-hmm. And complex trauma is essentially what she says is that it's imagining like in our lived experience, it's our younger selves and our adult selves living in the same body, mm-hmm. experiencing life as it is and as it was. Yeah. Right? And so... We all, to some degree, I believe, kind of have that experience, right? Where our younger selves can show up even in our adult bodies and really pop up and ask the question, are we okay? Are we safe? Is this like that time where we felt like we weren't enough or we got that message that we weren't enough or we weren't good enough or we were a failure if we didn't Mm -hmm. act like this or do this, right? That younger self in us can still show up in our adult bodies. And our practice 
is parsing out what is and what was. Right? We all, to some degree, I think, experience that kind of complexity of trauma. Does that resonate? Does that make sense? It does. It does. Because I think we're, and I think it could be generational, how, you know, how we fight against analysis. We fight against the fact that there was anything wrong. When mm. it may be those defenses when we were young that protected us and therefore it's carrying, carrying through with us all these years. And so we're still, and, and that's why guys going to therapy or seeking help, because there are Julie's all around the country, around the world who are ready to help you with yeah. these conversations. And it doesn't hurt. There's nothing wrong with going and checking, you know, no. uh, even, even for me, having gone to therapy and gotten help, I still go regularly to check in. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so I think, I think some of us are like, no, I, there's nothing wrong. And there may not be. I don't know what that means. You don't know what that means. But I think sometimes we let things fester and yeah. it comes up in the form of anxiety. I've had that, you know, depression. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people have that. Yeah. And I think, you know, we need to normalize having these conversations and That's normalize right. talking about how are you doing and not on a superficial level to improve these things so that the, the number of people who die by suicide because yeah. they didn't get help is, yeah. is out of control. Yeah, it sure is. You know, it and is. so that's, that's why we want to have these talks because I think sometimes, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. You, you may no. just be on the wrong path. No, and that's what I always say. It's, it's, it's not about fixing what's wrong. It's about really being able to have the support that we mm. need, right? It's being able to have the support that we need. And, you know, our threat response behaviors, our defensive moves, you know, whether they're showing up in anxiety or depression or control or, you know, whatever, or numbing, Whatever those moves are, again, I never shame them because I think they've been developed for us as a way to keep us safe. What we do know about every single one of those threat response moves, however, is they keep us disconnected. Mm. They keep us disconnected from ourselves and also from the people around us, from the people that matter. They keep us disconnected from our lived experience, right? And that's what we, I think, really try to do in the therapeutic space is bring back connection to our lived experience, mm -hmm. right? Bring back, the more connected we are to ourselves, the more connected we can be to the people that we love and care for. And I think so much of this is also around that beautiful word of vulnerability, you know? And I think in many immigrant households and, and maybe uh, certainly others too, we, you know, again, meaning making, we may have been given the message, the narrative that we don't cry, mm -hmm. we don't emote in these ways of, let's say, tears, right? That, you know, we do that in private. And I understand where those things coming from, but I think that in some ways they can also be harmful, right? Those messages can be harmful in that they essentially, the way that we can interpret them is that my tears mean weakness. My tears are bad. The ways that I express or cry or even just express emotion, sadness, that there's no place for that. And the, the harm that that creates is that when I am not giving space for that place in me that is navigating painful emotion, it's going to show up regardless. It's going to show up in my physical health. Mm -hmm. It's going to show up in the way that I get angry at my child. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It will show up in harmful ways if we don't really allow permission for that place in us to be seen. Yeah, it's it's almost uh, an arrogance to think that you could control it. Mm, it's, it's a bit arrogant yeah. to think that you can manage it, so to speak. And so, guys, uh, the, the reason I brought Jules on here is because I think we need to we need to look into this. We need to look into ourselves and have these conversations with a professional or, you know, at least start doing the work for yourself. Are you happy with where you're right. at? Is it what you want to do? And sometimes it doesn't have to be a great big grand thing. It may just be small steps. 
you know, that that's you got to right. put in. Right. That's right. And it's, it's that, you know, are you operating from these places of defenses, mm-hmm. right? How often in our lives are we op? I always call it like, I don't know if people are going to be able to see me. You can see us, on YouTube. Right? <laughs> what? Oh, watch, you- watch it on the YouTube. That you oh, okay, you right? can see what but you always do. Like, uh, I always imagine it's like, it's like you have your fists up and, and it's, it's either, am I showing up in life with my fists up or like if imagine me throwing a blanket over my head and my, is that how I'm yeah. showing up in life? Right. And if I'm showing up that way, likely people are not seeing, nor am I really experiencing the purest, most authentic expression of me. I love what you just said there, because, you know, oftentimes we think we're hundred percent us, right? We're the, what, what we're showing the world is a hundred percent us, but there's always work to be done. Yeah. And so if you have your hands up or if you have a blanket over your head, not only is the world missing out on getting to experience hundred percent you, but so are you. Yeah. And yeah. I've always wondered what would that look like? Yeah. I mean, don't you guys wonder what would that look like if I could just be a hundred percent my authentic self. And here's the thing I want to say before I give Julie her last two questions, regardless of what age you're at, especially for those in the U S who are, I think it's 18 plus at this point, it's, it's, you have to take care of yourself Mm. and your health and your mental health. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know you have people in your life who want the best for you, Mm -hmm. but you have to decide what that means because if you think that you need help you can get the help Mm. so i i think that sometimes we we hold ourselves back because what are my parents going to think or you know what are they going to say honestly when i wanted to get therapy my parents said yes but they didn't Mm. understand it right you know if anything i think we prayed harder (laughs) they prayed harder Cause they just, they knew I was going through something. They didn't know how to help. So they prayed harder and I prayed of course, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, guys, for those who are Christians or uh, religious, why would God train all these folks in therapy, psychology, mm. psychiatry, mm. if not to be used? Mm. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's always been my thought on it. Yeah. Beautiful. So, Jules, before before I let you go, I gotta I gotta press the button. Hold on. Let's go. It's time to be intentional. So, for these guys who are figuring yeah. out for themselves as they are getting ready to chase their dreams, what is a common mistake you find that people make? Yeah, that's a great question. I think people. This is, you know, I think from my witness, my experience, what can be maybe problematic or harmful is that we try to motivate ourselves through self-judgment or through self-criticism or even through shame. Like we're just really hard on ourselves. Yes. Expand a little bit. Well, I think so. We're trying to kind of move through. And if we experience a setback or a failure, we're really tough on ourselves, right? And we're just like, ah, like, why did I do that? Or how did that happen? Or, you know, I got to do this, right? And it's, it's really, I think, in some ways, kind of coming from that place of the pain story. Mm. I'm not enough. And so therefore, I'm a failure. And therefore, I'm so I got to, you know, I got to do these things from that narrative, from that story. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it, you know, our moves, as far as getting to the next place can come really from this motivation of I'm not good enough and therefore, or I'm not worthy of love and therefore I have to do this thing. Right. And so I, I think just, it's that, it's that place where we can just, just be so tough on ourselves. Yeah. We can just be so tough on ourselves. And I think the research is showing that that's actually not, not that it's not bad or good. It's just not particularly effective. It's not, it's not helping. Effective. It's not helping. It's not helping. It's not helping. Yeah. Keep that in mind, guys. I mean, that's, that's strong food for thought right there. Because I think we all go through that. Yeah. No, no one is above that, per se. And no. then, Jules, I have to ask for the last one for these guys who are, again, trying to chase their dreams, what is one thing that they can do today to help them? I think it's along the lines of, 
you know, you know, for our good reasons, we can often kind of operate or be motivated from this place of, well, I have to do, or I have to kind of shame inducing flip side of that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of research, particularly coming out of UC Berkeley around this. The flip side of that is practicing self-compassion, practicing self-compassion. And then maybe that sounds sort of like this kind of, you know, woo-woo sort of thing. I actually don't think people know what that means. What it, can you just talk a little bit about self-compassion? Because I know when you when I first heard it, I didn't truly understand what it meant or how to do it. Yeah, no, I so appreciate that question. I think the, the self-compassion experience is it, like the way that I might interpret it and other people might define it differently. It's often we can ask ourselves the question, like, why am I like this? Why do I, why do I do this? Or, you know, what's my problem? Right. And again, that's very, it's coming from this place of self-judgment, self-criticism. I reframe that question to how did I get here? How did I get here? Right. It makes sense. It will start to make sense when you can open up sort of the dialogue from that kind of posture. How did I get here? Oh, it's because of this. It's because of all these things, right? And it starts to kind of allow us Mm -hmm. to get more curious about our lived experience, right? The experience of self-compassion is really looking at our lived experience through a lens of kindness, through a lens of kindness. You know, I, I often see you know, in my clients, even in myself, right? We can be kind to other people. Mm. You know what that's like. We don't necessarily practice that for we ourselves, don't. right? And that doesn't mean that, you know, we're sort of coddling our experience or we're dwelling in something. Self-compassion, there's research to back this up. It actually drives sustainable change. When we can experience and express compassion to self, it actually opens up the centers of our brain that tell us we are capable of growth and change. One of the things, guys, when I started trying to practice self-compassion, one, it can be difficult when you're not used to it. Mm. But two, one thing I found for me was I found it easier to pretend I was talking to someone else. Yeah. What would I tell them? Because I am absolutely kinder and it's easier to be kind to someone else than myself. And I'm like, all right, if I was talking to Jessica, what would I say? And then, you know, I would say that to myself yeah. and it was easier for me to do it yeah. until, until I could get into the rhythm of just saying it to myself. But yes. it, it is powerful, you know, when you are kind to yourself because you deserve it. I, I think that we forget that. Yes, I think that is really just an honoring experience and one that shapes our experience of the people around us. Mm -hmm. It's something that I think we model. If any of the people here are caregivers or parents, right, it's we model that, right? We model that to the the people that we care for. So, yeah. I love you, girl. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story and even just some food for thought for these guys as they're chasing their dreams on how they can, it's almost like fortifying yourself as you're getting ready to chase your dream or as you're in the middle of it, pivoting of sorts, guys. That's, that's what we wanted. That's what I wanted to do is provide you that kind of knowledge. And Jules, you were awesome in sharing it. Oh, well, bless you, sis. I, this has just been so much fun and um, just so lovely and just know that I'm a resource, however I can be. And I'm just so grateful to be, family with you so love you love you thank you all right bye there you have it guys that was my cousin jules i'm so excited that you got to hear this episode i'm excited we got to do this episode because i think the things she shared and if you made it through the entire episode you probably got a lot you go back to the show notes you can get it again or listen to it again share it with your friends share it with your peers because it's so important The conversation we had today is so important that we take a look at ourselves and kind of see where are we at and what traumas have we brought with us 
what generational impacts have there been? And it's always going to be something, guys. We may think that we can control it. it. It doesn't work like that. It's outside of our control. And so we can get the help. And so I want you to work with someone or work on yourself to look at the patterns, the narratives, and the trauma, as Julie put it, so that you can figure out what are your triggers, figure out how you can help yourself, because that shouldn't stop you from chasing your dream. And oftentimes, we're just on the wrong path. And I don't want you guys to be on the wrong path. As I get ready for my last episode, this is something that's important to me. I want you to chase your dream. I know you can chase your dream. But you need to know that you can chase your dream. And that's going to take introspection. It's going to take you taking time to be with yourself to figure it out. Because if you don't chase your dreams, what are you telling your kids? They shouldn't? They should. You should. We all deserve it. The world deserves it. You deserve it. All right? So I want you to take a listen. Go back. Check out the show notes if you need to over at amyj21.com slash episode 249. That's episode 249. And you're going to see this is going to make a difference for sure. All right, Dream Chasers. I'm going to let you go. But remember, the next episode is it. Episode 250. I don't know how we got here. Whew. It's going to be a doozy. So be sure to check it out. All right. Till next time. Remember, don't stop. Keep chasing. Thank you so much for listening to Chasing Dreams. Amy would love to connect with you and hear all about your pursuit of chasing your dreams. Connect with her on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram via at Chasing Dreams HQ. Or you can find Amy on Twitter at AmyJ21. That's A-I-M-E-E-J-2-1. Be sure to visit headquarters over at ChasingDreamsHQ.com for more inspiration, motivation, and resources to help with your own dream chase. We hope you'll join Amy next week. And until then, keep chasing.